0: This is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and this episode is about a certain category of hero. Most of us have read books and articles and seen movies about heroes, about the accomplishments of various military heroes, political heroes, civil rights heroes, or heroes who were the first to reach remote mountaintops or unexplored countries, or even the moon. But in today's episode, I'd like to discuss some heroes that don't generally make their way into the headlines, or have feature films made about them. And they are... Librarian heroes. The first story begins in a place that almost sounds like a made-up and fictitious location, and that is Timbuktu. Timbuktu. Timbuktu is a city there in the West African nation of Mali, and it stands right at the southern edge of the Sahara Desert. This is a modern story, it took place just in the last few years, but we have to know a little bit about the unique history of Timbuktu before we jump into it. Timbuktu became a major settlement, and a hub of activity and culture all the way back in the 12th century. When the cities of Europe were still stumbling their way through the Dark Ages, Timbuktu was a beacon of intellectualism and economic activity. Travelers and traders from all kinds of nations would gather there to exchange ivory and spices and livestock and gold and also knowledge. Engineers and scientists, writers and thinkers, they would all pass through Timbuktu and discuss all kinds of ideas and they would very often write these ideas down. And before long, Timbuktu was home to hundreds of thousands of manuscripts and books and other texts. A lot of those were religious texts, but there were also works of poetry and works of algebra and astronomy and law, botany, geography, medicine, history, chemistry and a wide range of other subjects. The scientists and scribes were breaking new ground in Timbuktu in many fields of study. By the mid-1500s, the city was a reader's paradise. Historians say that during this era, it was the most bibliophilic or book-loving city on earth. By this time, it had a population of more than 100,000 people. Many of them were Jewish families who had come to Timbuktu from Spain to flee the Catholic Inquisition. And even though most of the population was Muslim, the city welcomed the Jews with open arms. At this time, about a quarter of Timbuktu's population were students. Many of them were from other countries. From other nations in Africa, from Egypt, Jews from Spain as I mentioned and even some students from as far away as the Arabian Peninsula. And a great many of them were there for the books. They were there for those manuscripts. They were in Timbuktu to learn from all of those texts and to add to them. Well, over the centuries, the collection of books and other texts grew. And even though Timbuktu suffered Islamic invasions and occupations and some colonial plundering, A great number of the ancient manuscripts survived, and they remained in and around the city all the way into the modern era. One of those was a 254-page volume written in Timbuktu in 1684 about elixirs made from birds and lizards. Another one is a very small book written in the 12th century, and it's written on the dried skin of a fish. In 1988, all of these ancient treasures came onto the radar of the international community. And Timbuktu was designated a United Nations World Heritage Site. Sweeping policies were put into place to preserve and protect the fabled city and all of its libraries and other ancient sites. And it seemed like the survival of all Timbuktu's manuscripts and books was finally guaranteed. But then came Al-Qaeda. In March of 2012, an African branch of Al-Qaeda joined forces with Tuareg nationals. These Islamists had benefited immensely from the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya the year before. Gaddafi's fall prompted a flow of arms across the Sahara, And Al-Qaeda and the Tuaregs were among the beneficiaries of these weapons, and of the chaos that was left in Qaddafi's absence. So, armed to the hilt, Al-Qaeda and the other militant Islamists descended upon Timbuktu. And within a month, they overthrew Mali's army. Now, if you've been following the news in the Middle East and North Africa over the last few years you'll know that the rise of radical Islam has posed a grave challenge to the custodians of the region's ancient sites and heritage. Numerous ancient churches, mosques, and other sites have been pillaged and demolished. Libraries in particular have often been targeted because the Islamists don't see ancient writings as part of their heritage, but instead as idolatry. This view harkens back to the caliph umar he is the islamist credited with burning down the ancient library of alexandria and at the time that he gave the order to torch it he said if the books agree with the quran they are superfluous if they disagree with it they are heretical so that same mentality was driving al-qaeda in 2012 when they descended upon timbuktu And after defeating the military and driving out the government forces and occupying the city, Al-Qaeda imposed Sharia law. They forced women behind veils. They forced the men to grow beards. They replaced Timbuktu radio with uninterrupted recitation of Quranic verse. They wasted no time destroying many of Timbuktu's ancient sites and icons, including some 15th-century mausoleums. And the libraries feared that they were next. The terrorists doled out cruel punishment for anyone who resisted them. But that did not stop our first heroic librarian from taking action. His name was Abdelkader Hydera, a native of Timbuktu. Hydera was 47 years old, and he'd been working since the mid-80s, gathering up, protecting, and cataloging all of Timbuktu's ancient texts. When Al-Qaeda took over and began that all-too-familiar process of religious cleansing, which threatened to destroy all those books and texts, Hydera undertook one of the greatest book evacuations in history.
1: Well, it was an enormously complicated operation that had several stages. That's Joshua Hammer speaking to PRI in April of this year. Hammer has
0: carefully studied the details of Hydra's heroics, and he recently wrote a book about them. Hydra called for a secret meeting with the other associates of Timbuktu's library system. And the first stage of their operation was to get the books out of the city's libraries and to hide them where the terrorists would not be likely to find them. Hydera's team had to do this under the cloak of darkness.
1: The first stage was taking them in the middle of the night by flashlight out of these libraries, stashing them inside private houses where they remained for several months.
0: This was an immense operation because there were just so many books there were hundreds of thousands of them that needed to be hidden. So Hydera's team bought hundreds of wooden trunks and metal containers. They also repurposed lots of old oil barrels so that they could function as book containers. Then they formed into a small army of packers who worked silently throughout many long nights. And once each trunk or barrel was full of the books, the team would attach the trunk or barrel to the back of a donkey. Then they would lead the donkey to one of various safe houses that they had located in Timbuktu and just outside the city. By conducting these midnight operations, Hydera and those working with him were risking everything. Al-Qaeda punished anyone who didn't totally submit to them with public stonings, and with public amputations. These kinds of public punishments were a commonplace during the occupation. And it was all sanctioned by the Sharia law that the terrorists had imposed. Hydra and those helping him knew what they were risking. But that didn't stop these heroic librarians. They forged ahead with their plan. And after the team had moved as many books and manuscripts as possible out of the libraries, They let them sit for a few months but then they knew that they needed to get them entirely out of Timbuktu.
1: The next step was to actually get them out of the safe houses in Timbuktu and smuggle them past jihadi checkpoints down to Bamako, the capital of Mali. That's about 85
0: miles away and the roads in between were controlled by that al-Qaeda group so cars were often stopped and searched along these roads. But despite the dangers, these smuggling operations worked without a hitch for a little while. But then, after European powers finally got involved in the Mali conflict, those routes closed up.
1: The third and final stage came when the French military invaded and the whole north became a war zone. You could no longer travel on the roads. At that point, he had to switch gears entirely.
0: This new gear, as Hammer phrased it, required Hydera's operation to transition from land to water. They took to the Niger River. They loaded up small boats with their precious cargo, and they made their way up those 85 miles or more of river to finally bring them to Bamako. By the time it was over, Haider's team had been able to save all but 4,000 manuscripts.
1: Those 4,000 were left behind in a library that had been occupied early on by the jihadists and turned into a military barracks. And they had been coexisting with these volumes and doing their military training and not bothering with them, strangely enough. And then in the last days, as the French were about to seize Timbuktu, in a spasm of vengeance, they grabbed everything they could find, made a big pyre and, and doused it with gasoline and set them on fire, destroyed everything, reduced them to ashes.
0: So those 4,000 were destroyed, but thanks to Hydera and his team, more than 375,000 of Timbuktu's ancient books and manuscripts were saved. You're listening to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. Please send us your comments by emailing tsar at kpcg.fm. After the break, we have a small request to ask of you listeners, and then another story of a heroic librarian. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. Today we're talking about a category of heroes whose praises are not often sung. Librarian heroes. Before we launch into the next story, I'd like to ask for your help with a future episode of the program. We need your advice. Do you have a snippet of advice that you think would be valuable for other people to hear about? Something... Practical and interesting that will make people's lives a little more efficient or a little bit more abundant or happier. Please email us. The address is tsar at kpcg.fm. So please send us a morsel or two of advice that you think will be helpful for other people to hear. The next story begins about two years ago. I was reading through the news for various Asian countries. For my job with thetrumpet.com, I typically focus on the geopolitics of Russia, China, and other Asian nations. So I try to follow the news as closely as I can for those parts of the world. Well, one day I was taking a look at a, a news site or a blog focusing on Mongolia, and I saw a picture of a man named Dog Jamba. I love his name, Dashton Dog Jamba. (laughs) Anyway, the picture of Dashton Dog really grabbed my attention because he was up high on a camel, and there was kind of a blanket on the camel's hump, and attached to the blanket, almost like a layer of panels, were lots of brightly colored books. They were children's books, and small children were surrounding Dashton Dog as he handed the brightly colored books down to them. Well, I was really intrigued by this photo, and after I read the very short accompanying article about him, my interest only grew. I wanted to learn more about this Mongolian man, this camel-riding book enthusiast. So I started to do some research, but there wasn't that much information available. I had several questions that none of the small articles I found could really give an answer to. I could see that he devoted his life to what he called his mobile library project, which let him bring books to children who didn't have access to normal libraries, and I could see that he was a very service-oriented and giving person, but I couldn't find out too many other details. But I started to write up a small article about him anyway. I thought it would make a short, but hopefully inspiring, human interest story for thetrumpet.com. And as I was researching, I came across one small blog of a writer who had met Mr. Dashton Jamba personally. Her name was Marguerite Rurs. So I emailed her to ask her a few questions and also to ask for permission to reprint one of the photos of on Dog that appeared on her blog. Well, she wrote back to me and she said that the photo was not hers, but that it belonged to on Dog himself. And then she offered to give me his email address if I was interested. Well, this really surprised me. From what I'd read of on Dog, I had not expected him to be plugged into the internet. I didn't imagine a camel out in the middle of the Gobi Desert to be equipped with Wi-Fi, and I didn't think that he would even speak English. But I gave it a shot. I wrote him an email requesting permission to reprint his photo, and also asking if he would be willing to be interviewed for the article. I sent that email at five thirteen PM on August seventeenth, back in 2014. And I didn't really know what to expect, but from my previous experience trying to get in contact with certain people in remote countries, my hopes were not too high. But at 9.48 that night, I received a reply. Dear Jeremiah, thank you for your letter. I give you a permit to publish the photo you mentioned. Should you be interested in it, I am ready to send you some stories and books of mine. For your information, I will be on a 10 day countryside tour from August 21st, 2014. So I will be unable to contact you during that time. Yours truly, Dashtan Dog Jamba. Well, I was overjoyed to have received this prompt reply. And also at his offer to send me some books. So I wrote back quickly and I sent him my mailing address and I also offered to pay him for the books. I was hoping the reply email would reach him before he embarked on that 10-day tour through the Mongolian desert. But a few days went by, and I didn't receive any email from him, so I thought that it would have to wait until he returned from that trip. But about a week later, while he was out on the Mongolian steppe, I received a large package in the mail, and it was full of beautiful children's books. Up until this time... I'd thought that Dashton Dog was only a librarian, just focused on distributing books to those isolated children. But the books were all written by him, so he was also an author. The package included a note that said there was no need for payment. He was happy to give his books freely to anyone who was interested in them. There was one called Stone Legends. There was another one called The Old Woman Who Speaks to Ravens. And one sort of autobiographical one called, When Does the Mobile Library Come? They were all published in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, but they were in English. And it was really exciting for me to be able to read through them. And then after he returned from his trip, we started to exchange lots of emails. So I was delighted to be able to get all of my questions answered. It turned out that he'd been devoting his life to his mobile library project since the early 1990s. And since that time, he's traveled more than 50,000 miles through every single province of the vast country of Mongolia. And it's not just him. The mobile library is a family business. And Dashtan wife and his son both come along with him for pretty much every trip. Sometimes they go by camel, but sometimes they go with a horse that pulls them in a cart. And just in the last couple of years, they've also been able to buy a van. They often spend several days in one place so that they can give as many children as possible a chance to read their books. Here's what Dashtan Dog said when he was asked to describe his mobile library. It is a little different from other libraries. The walls of this reading room are made of mountains covered with forest. The roof is blue sky. The floor is a flower covered step. And the reading light bulb is the sun. You can tell from the poetry interlaced into that answer how much Dashtan Dog loves his work. I learned that he started the project up in the early 1990s shortly after Mongolia had abandoned communism and adopted free market economics. At that time, life in Mongolia changed mostly for the better. But organizations focused on children's literature had fared badly. They were viewed as profitless in a country whose people didn't have very much disposable income so there were no private investors who wanted to take them over. Most of the children's libraries at this time were converted into banks. Dashton Dog fought to try to keep some of those libraries alive, but it was to no avail. They all went under. That was when he decided that if the children had no place to go get books, he would get the books to the children. Ever since, he's been writing children's books, translating foreign youth literature into Mongolian, and bringing books to children who would otherwise never read them. Several of his original books have earned the Best Book of Mongolia Award, some of his stories have been put to song, and one was even made into a movie. In 2006, his mobile library won the prestigious Ibi Asahi Reading Promotion Award. But more remarkable than any of these honors is the fact that Dashdondog has done the bulk of his work without financial compensation. Most of the money for all the publishing and translating and printing and mobilizing comes from his own pocket. It comes from profits he earns from selling his original books. When he sent me all those books without accepting any payment, And when he refused payment for permission to reprint his photo, I thought it was something really unusual and anomalous. But it turns out that all of that generosity is business as usual for Dashton Dog. That's just how he lives. It's a life devoted to giving. I'd like to read another quote from him here, which he said in response to being asked about the compensation for his work. Sometimes people ask me how it benefits me as an individual. With respect to money, there is no benefit. Because of this, I think that Dashton Dog deserves recognition as a heroic librarian and as a man who lives the way of give. What effect has 20 years of giving had on him? Has it worn him down? Has it jaded him and tired him out? No. No. It has made this librarian happy. He told me that his devotion to children is his happiness. Back in 2009, an author named Ramendra Kumar spent some time with Dog. And after their time was up, Kumar wrote this about Dog. With his cherubic smile, his bright sparkling eyes, and an endearing countenance, Dog inspires trust. No wonder wherever he has gone in Mongolia, he has succeeded in winning the love, affection, and confidence of children. And really, his happiness is no anomaly. A team of researchers recently published the findings of kind of a meta-study. They analyzed data from 40 different scientific studies and found undeniable proof that people who give to others by volunteering have significantly lower levels of depression and far higher levels of what they called life satisfaction. One study called Do Good Live Well found that 68% of people who volunteer report feeling physically healthier. 73% experience lower levels of stress, and 89% enjoy an improved sense of well-being. These studies, and dashed on Dog's Generosity Generated Joy, confirm a fundamental truth about human beings. This is a truth that is recorded in Acts 20, verse 35, which says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then Proverbs 11, verse 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So a person who gives becomes refreshed and happier. And that's a universal aspect of the human condition, but it's one that most of us fail to recognize because it's kind of counterintuitive. Naturally, we think that we'll be happiest if we receive and if we take, but the opposite is actually true. Well, if you'd like to see a photo of Dashton Dog on his camel and read more about him, please go to thetrumpet.com and if you scroll down to the featured section, you'll see our article there called The Camelback Library. And next time you're in a library, I hope you'll remember Dog Jamba and his mobile library project. And I hope you'll remember Abdel Khadr Hydera and his team. Because these people are heroic librarians whose stories can give us some inspiration. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. You can hear us at 101.3 on the FM dial here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And the live stream is available anywhere in the world if you just type kpcg.fm into your internet browser. We really appreciate you listening today, and we hope that you'll send us your comments and feedback. Just email tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank the KPCG operations manager, Dwight Falk, and the production assistant, Abraham Blondeau. And I'll leave you with some words from the British author, Neil Gaiman. Google can bring you back 100,000 answers, but a librarian can bring you back the right one. Thank you again, and please tune in next Thursday for another episode of The Sun Also Rises.